Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. Sometime between the year 1280 and 1350, a group of seafaring Polynesian people reached the shores of an uninhabited island group that was the last remaining landmass on Earth to be settled by humans. The people called themselves Maori, and they named their home Aotearoa. 400 years later, Europeans would arrive and call the islands New Zealand. Using mitochondrial DNA evidence, scientists have traced current Maori people back to between 50 and 100 women who were among the original settlers of the islands. And I would give anything to know what their lives were like as they traveled across the ocean and made a new home. And I'm so grateful to have learned more about Maori history for this episode. And I'm super excited to be able to discuss it with someone I admire so very much, Gina Colvin. Welcome to the podcast, Gina. Thank you so much for being here. I'd like to start the episode by asking you to introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from, a little bit about your family of origin and your education, your work, and some things that make you who you are and have led you to the work you do. Uh, kia ora, Amy. And um, I think in these situations, I feel a little awkward because I would usually do this in Māori. But I'm going to give you a bit of a translation. If you take the North Island of New Zealand and you look at it, as if it was an upside-down skate, an upside-down stingray. My people come from the tail of the stingray. That's Northland. And then if you look to the right, there's a flap like on the stingray, and that is where my other side of my people come from. And so the people associated with Northland are Ngāpuhi, and the people associated with the East Coast, or we call Te Tairāwhiti, is Ngāti Poro. And Ngāti just means descended from. So mm. I'm descended from people from the Puhin. There's a big story about that. And Pororangi, who was a descendant of the original whale rider, Paikia, who made his way, by legend, made his way on the back of a whale to New Zealand. So wow. that's kind of my history. And currently I live in Christchurch in the South Island in the canoe of Maui, we call it, the Waka a Maui. And... Here I live with my tāne, my husband, Nathan, uh, and we have six boys and four are still at home, unfortunately. I'd like them to move <laughs> out. <laughs> I love that. love the honesty. That's so yeah. great. Well, I hadn't planned to ask you this question, but your introduction was so beautiful in Māori, and that leads me to the question, did you grow up speaking Māori? And is that an introduction that you would do anytime you meet a new person? Well, in a New Zealand context, absolutely. And I would give it all in Māori. Because people here are reasonably used to the format, it's called a mihi, so we're used to the format. And some people don't know exactly what's going on, but kind of, well, they know what's going on, but not necessarily word for word. But I didn't grow up with the reo. The reo is the, our word for the language. Oh, thank you. Okay. I grew up around a lot of Māori aunties, particularly in the LDS church. I don't think that you'd find many Māori that weren't associated in some way with the LDS Church in New Zealand. But so did I grow up, I grew around the tikanga or the culture and the customs, not so much the language, because there was a concerted effort by the New Zealand government to eradicate the use of Māori. And so people in my father's generation were punished at school for speaking the language. And I remember listening to an older lady, a queer, we call them queer. She said, I only spoke Māori at home. And then when I went to school, I wasn't allowed to speak Māori. And she said, and I had no thought, no language, no thought. Wow. And from that, our people, that generation were considered dumb. But coming into the 1970s and the 1980s, there was an uptick in the Māori renaissance and resurgence. People looked at the state of affairs and thought, if we don't do something, we're going to lose our language. And so now our Māori is an official language in New Zealand. Children receive instruction in, not compulsory, but mostly instruction in Māori language. And you would, if you want to be any part of the public service, a teacher, you need to have been trained in understanding original documents like Treaty of Waitangi, New Zealand history, and to have some facility with the language. That's just the way of it now. Oh, that's so, fantastic. What a mm. great change. And so it's optional in school, like you can enroll your kids in the language if you want to? It's a good question. So we have a standard curriculum across the country. And I'm speaking because I used to be in education. I used to teach teachers. 
So part of our curriculum and our expectations for teachers is that they have some kind of competency. I don't know that it's policed particularly well, but, you know, there's a kind of a, an agreement, a gentlewoman's agreement, that people are going to be using the language and incorporating it into the daily life of the classroom. Hmm, got it. Yeah, and the tikanga and the customs, yeah. That's awesome. Okay, I do have to come back to one other thing you said, Gina, because that was so surprising to me. Why such a huge presence of the LDS church in New Zealand? Okay, can I also say that I'm no longer LDS? And I always say this. I say, my hands and feet are Christian, my head is Buddhist, and my heart is Maori. Mm. So I love working in Christian spaces. I'm formerly a member. I'm an Anglican in New Zealand, and I'm community of Christ across the world. So internationally, I'm community of Christ. So, you know, I make it up as I wish to. But the question is a really good one. And I think Mormons came, the LDS Church came to New Zealand in the 1870s. By that stage, we've had a long history, a few generations of Christianity. And so Māori didn't necessarily begin to join any particular church. I don't think the concept of joining a church was of any particular interest, but they were building a relationship with missionaries. And so the Anglican Church in New Zealand, which is, of course, the Church of England, became the Hahi Mihingari, which is the missionaries' church. And so it was very, very relational. When the Anglican Church proper came and began to establish an institution here and started building churches and brought their priesthood over, things changed considerably because as things are want to go, the church kind of greeds the wheel of colonization. So by the time the LDS Church decided to come and missionize or evangelize New Zealand, Māori had gone through a long history with the Anglicans, the Wesleyans, the Catholics in particular. And they had often sided with the settlers, the incoming settlers. And so because they're mostly associated with England and a fresh American face on Christianity was actually really powerful because they have rotating missionary activity. They came and didn't establish houses or try and buy land as such. And they learnt the language very, very quickly. They gave people the whole baptism for the dead, the gathering of names, and we call that whakapapa. That part of the LDS tradition really resonated with Māori. The LDS eschatologies and theologies really synchronised well with Māori. There was more room, I think, for syncretising Māori and Mormonism. It gradually tightened up. As things do, that's the pattern. Like, okay, now we have this kind of really liminal kind of sharing of space, this really intercultural encounter, but now we need to get to the real business of establishing a church. And so Mm. the eldest church didn't respond particularly well to the Renaissance. Māori wanted to be able to speak their own language in churches, and there were a number of people who were told that that's not acceptable. Only now, in 2023, do you have Māori language branches, and that's in the north. But, you know, a lot of the damage has already been done. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I actually wasn't aware of that, so that's really fascinating. So as we discussed, Gina, before we started this, we really want to focus on Māori custom and culture regarding gender. And this was really all new to me and I found it so beautiful and so powerful. So I thought maybe we could get into that by starting at the very beginning and having you share the Maori creation narrative with us. Okay. Can I also say that I don't speak for all Maori. In fact, the sure. word Maori only came about when the non-Maori arrived. The word for non-Maori is Pākehā. And they arrived and they were fair-skinned and there was, uh, well, one story is that the Pakipakiha were a light-skinned mythical people. And so the white people were called Pakiha, like Haole in Hawaii, etc., Balangi in Samoa. And I can only give my story. And there really isn't as such Māori. There are people from Ngāti Parau and there's people from Ngāpuhi and Tūwharitoa and Ngaitahu and there are lots and lots of tribes. And also the urban Māori. So I'm going to give it a generic story <laughs> and I say that because I don't want an auntie going yeah America America which is you know you who you talking to that American lady and you were wrong um, <laughs> which is all very well 
So I think you can only think about creation in terms of phases or stages of things coming into being. And we start with a creation period of potentiation, which is called the kore, and then into night, which is the bo, and the almarama, which is the daylight. And somewhere in that creative period, that potentiation produced a masculine and a feminine. So the feminine came about, and her name was Papatsuanuku, and the masculine was Ranginui. In their creation, they were tightly woven together in this profoundly loving embrace and within the small space between them, they produced all these children. And it came about that the children were getting restless because they couldn't move. They couldn't be who they needed to be. They needed that freedom. And some of the children wanted to stay all tucked up inside the belly space of their parents. But one god, Kutane, who's the god of the living things upon the earth, he prized the parents apart put his head to the belly of his mother and his feet to the belly of his father and prides them apart. So Rangi Nui shut up and became the sky. So he's the sky father and Papa Tuanuku is the earth mother. His brothers and sisters were Tangaroa, he's the god of the sea, and Tumatuengo is the god of war. So everything sort of shot into their place, including the stars, when this, this kind of creative thing happened. So mm. that's the story. I love, I love the story. Did you mm. grow up? Knowing that story, or when did you learn it? Yeah, I can't remember a time where I didn't know the story. Hmm. Yeah. Which you learned, like, in your family? or No, I need to say I didn't grow up with my father. In Māori, I would say that my father liked to go around planting his seed into Pākehā gardens. <laughs> so he produced understood families. <laughs> mm-hmm. But my mother was always really, really supportive, but ignorant, but quite supportive. But I kind of, you know, I mean, I grew up in New Zealand, so you just sort of know these things. Mm, okay. And I grew up really close to my Māori church family, and many of them were my own kin. Hmm. So, Wonderful. yeah. Okay, the next question I was going to ask you is about the term mana wahine, and then a linked term... Gina, just for listeners, Gina gave me articles to read and some podcasts to listen to so that we would have kind of a common vocabulary and common point of reference for the episode. And yeah, this term mana wahine was really interesting to me. Can you talk about that? Well, you've got to come back to the idea of mana. And mana is our inheritance from the gods, which gives one a sense of continuing worth. It gives one a sense of that potentiation, that you have spiritual quality and you have spiritual essence. So that's what mana is. Now, mana can come through your birth. It can be a birthright kind of mana, but mana is something that anybody can grow. They can live in their mana. And wahine is feminine. It's the feminine. So all human beings would have the mana and then it, the feminine presenting would be the mana wahine. Yeah, it's, it's right? a particular kind of mana Got that it. belongs to the iro wahine, which is the female essence. Yeah. Okay, so one of the articles that you shared with me described the term feminist and said that it could be translated in a certain way, and she kind of unpacked the meaning of those three Maori words. Could you talk about those terms? And I don't know how to pronounce it. Was it, it. the kai mana wahine? Yes. Yeah, I think it was just kind of a translation thing. So kai kokiri. So kai is is a prefix you use when you're talking about somebody who does something. So if I'm teaching, I'm ako, and if I'm kai ako, I'm a teacher. So it's really an activist. Kokiri is to to activate something or to press against something or to challenge got something. It. Oh, mm. got it. Okay. So is this a term that's common, and is that a term that you would like describe yourself in those terms, or? Uh, no. Well, not in Māori context. No, I don't really need to. Ooh, why? T- it's not necessary because it's all just there, you know. Feminism is really a white lady thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I understand it and I'm sympathetic to it, but it's not actually that necessary to push myself as a woman in Māori contexts. Mm. Because the structures and the thinking is already there that give women their place. Hmm. Even with the influence of European colonizers and the churches that you just listed, like the Christian churches, 
did it not infiltrate into Maori culture or did it infiltrate for a time, but there's been a course correction? Because I have to be honest with you, this is one of the last podcasts that I've recorded for this year of women all over the world. This is the first time I've heard someone say something so incredibly hopeful <laughs> that gives me so much hope that like a woman's like, yeah, I don't, I kind of don't need feminism because the structure is already equitable. Never yeah. have I heard that. So I want you to talk about that a bit more. In Del Maori, in the Maori world, we have rituals of approach and encounter. And if we start with the way people are welcomed into a tribal space and you go with the structure of that, the masculine and the feminine weave together really, really beautifully. If you go out of that structure and you do something else, then that's cause for concern. So let me explain. On numerous occasions, I've gone as a visitor to another tribal area or another hapu, which is a smaller kind of version of a tribe. And the ritual of approach is that you go through the gate and you arrive into a space where conversation happens to establish who the people are. And the feminine has a very important part. Nothing happens until the women begin to do their work. And their work is called the karanga. And the karanga just means a call. So I will stand at the gate with my group of people, of visitors going into another tribe's space, and I'll wait to hear the woman who was standing on the porch, and they begin to call. And so their first call is to open the heavens. And I respond to that call and acknowledge. So she calls and I call. And we're to imagine that our call forms a spiritual bond that kind of weaves around each other, forms a rope, and that call hauls up the visitors onto the marae. The marae is that meeting space. And so we're doing that really important spiritual work. We acknowledge the heavens and all of its bounties. We acknowledge the dead and we bring them into that space. We acknowledge Papatuanuku and Ranginui. And so we're doing this all acknowledging every sort of strand weaving and weaving and weaving and weaving. And everybody slowly comes up, slowly comes up, and then we take our places. The people who are the hokainga, the people who belong to that place on one side, and then the visitors on the other side. And once that work is done, everybody settles, and then the men begin to speak. Now, the feminists will say, oh, how terrible that the men get to speak and the women don't get to speak. We've already done our business. We did mm. our business, and nobody gets to get into that space until the women have done their business. Now. What will have happened in the background is that the aunties will have spoken to those who are speaking and will have given them direction. These are the things that you need to have saying on our behalf. This is not about you. This is about us. This is about us as a group of people. So very collective. Our identity is very, very collective. All the parts need to be sitting together very, very well. So if at any stage he doesn't represent us particularly well, the woman will get up and they'll sing, here's your song, and they'll sing very loudly, and that man will not know that they have to sit down. So you can kind of see the balance there, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. always a balance between the masculine and the feminine. Mm -hmm. Now, if anybody did that differently, then there would be things to say. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So feel very, very safe as a woman, as a Maori woman in a Maori context, very safe. Colonization has created some disruption in that because that overemphasis on the patriarchy and the disappearing of the feminine was really counter to our whole culture. I mean, that's why I wanted you to start with the Maori creation narrative, to be honest, is just the foundational story about a people understanding who they are and why they're in the world. And I think a, a creation narrative says a lot about a person's psyche as a people collectively and then individually. How do I understand myself? And so, yeah, to contrast the story you told with the Judeo-Christian narrative where there's not even a mother God involved in creation and Eve sins. We all know the story, right? And mm -hmm. so I would think it would have been a really terrible disruption. And just hearing you describe that ceremony that you just did too, I felt actually grief that anyone would convert to a different religion that would have denigrated women so much. You know, that seems like a really 
far fall, to be honest, for a woman to go from something that was so egalitarian to something so patriarchal. It seems kind of tragic, to be honest. It is. And I think Indigenous people everywhere, those who are really caught in the vices of colonization, I mean, we understand the irithani or the male essence to have a particular kind of necessary protective factor about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, aggressive factor. I'm not saying that women don't, but we also understand the necessity of the feminine to balance that. Mm-hmm. And so we always talk about balance, balance between the masculine and the feminine, balance between the sitting and the standing, balance between the sacred and the everyday and the ordinary. So you always have to get that, what we call that toe, that balance between all things. If you don't get the balance, then you get problems, right? Mm. And European patriarchy created an imbalance and we're still suffering from the consequences of that imbalance because the masculine doesn't kind of know what to do with itself. The feminine doesn't know what place it has. And so there are a lot of social consequences to the imbalance. Okay, one topic that you had brought up, Gina, that you wanted to talk about and then I got hooked on this. I was so moved by the podcast episode that you sent on the work of, will you pronounce her name for us? Nahuya. Yes. Okay. Nahuya Murphy. And you wanted to talk about the Maori conceptualization of menstruation. Can you tell us about Nahuya Murphy's research on menstruation? So menstruation, of course, in Pākehā kind of worldview is something to be hidden. It's dirty, it's impure. But in the Māori context, I need to give you a bit of a Māori lesson. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so the word for menstruation more recently has become ikura, which is from the blood or the redness or the flowing of the red. But when I was growing up, we used to call it our mate, which is our death. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite cool, you know, because it's kind of like a death. And your funny tangata in your womb, a little death happened. <laughs> oh, but it was it seen as something bad or it was just like, ah, that's what happens. There's that's a- just what it is. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. And so women used to be able to go off to, you know, the equivalent of the red tent because when their blood was flowing, they were very tapu, which was very kind of restricted. So the activities were restricted, but not in a bad way. And that's why we sad. We sad during our ikura and our mate because that's our little death that happened. So, so it meant yeah. you should take care of yourself and kind of yes. like give yourself a little break for a couple of days? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You couldn't cook or do anything when you had your ikura. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you just didn't keep going, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's come. So now I'm tapu. Now I'm sacred. So you can't touch me (laughs) and I can't do anything for you because I'm tapu. (laughs) I didn't realize tapu meant sacred. Yeah. So it's your sacred time. It's your sacred time of being in your uh, karia roto, being in your feelings and being in, you know. Now, some women collected their menstrual blood Mm -hmm. because it was good for cursing things. (laughs) (laughs) But always, you know, your ikura went back to Papa Tuanuku. Your menstrual blood went back to Mother Earth. And that's that connection between the feminine of the earth and the feminine of the self. So our bodies are like extensions of Papa Tuanuku. The feminine is to be understood as an extension of the earth mother. So we treat our body the way that we would treat the earth, which should be nicely and kindly. Beautiful. Yes, so Ngahui Murphy was really about decolonizing our understandings of menstruation, which has been great in terms of instead of using tampons and pads that just get thrown away, a lot of women have innovated using traditional technologies for capturing menstrual blood and disposing of our blood properly and sustainably rather than just kind of chucking out in the rubbish because it's very, very sacred. Yeah. Wow. I'm just processing that. What that how that would feel differently from the time you're a young teen or a preteen or something and saving it because you think it's sacred. First of all, what that would do to your attitude toward your body and toward the blood and not thinking of it as gross and that something's coming from you that's gross. I mean, that's a total mind shift for me. But then also, yeah, that what you just said, the sustainability. And I've you know, recently just being feeling a little sick to my stomach about all the plastics of tampons and pads. And then it just goes to landfill in our culture, which is 
Yeah, everything. Yeah, and it's not necessary. I mean, if you use things like yeah. Diva Cups or right, right. if you rinse your panties, you know, because we have thingy wear, you know, menstrual underwear, and if you yeah. use those and you, you know, soak them in water, then you can use that water and you can put it back into the garden. Yeah. Well, it's probably great for plants, right? Yeah. So one phrase that struck me from the podcast episode was – she mentioned just the phrase, whose womb waters do you come from? Uh, Is that a common greeting? I didn't know if that was something that was asked, like when you meet someone, like who's your family, who are your people? She said, whose womb waters do you come from? Yes. Oh, I like the way that she said that. And that's something I hadn't thought about before. When we ask, where are you from? And that's always the first question. I would never ask somebody their name. So if I oh. met them in a Maori context, the first thing I would say is, where are you from? Where do you descend from? And then I might ask, kind of sheepishly watch your family name and then maybe their name. That's less important than where somebody is from. But the, the word way is used for water, but it's also used for who. Oh. So if I say noa ko wai toingwa, which is translated into English as what's your name, but the word way is used also as water. So whose water is your name from? Oh, so that's what she meant by womb it's whose water are you from you yes. would imagine that's like yeah the childbirth the amniotic fluid yeah yeah and, and the water is always very very important so mm. in traditional contexts, when I introduce myself I'll basically say my ancestors waka or their canoe landed on the shore and then the waters came from that mountain and they came down to feed my ancestral village so if you take the word for why, which is used in the introduction of self, but it also means water. If you look at the word hapu, which is a village, a village community, a hapu, but it also means pregnant. Wow. Um, if you look at the word whenua, is land, but it's also placenta. The word pito is your umbilicus. And it's also the word for the end of something, the building. So children's petal, the umbilicuses, are buried at the end of a house, of a carved meeting, an ancestral house. And then the whenua, the placenta, is buried back into ancestral land. So we say the whenua to the whenua, the petal to the petal. So you've got all of this language which binds us to a larger schema, language that we would use on an everyday level, but also language on a higher spiritual level. Does that make sense? It does. It's just it's so, yeah, it's so lovely. It's so beautiful to bind people to their ancestors and to their land. And I'm just thinking again, like you said about the blood, I'm just thinking about my own life and my own self as a little teenager, all the way till now, I've actually done some kind of work in my own life, reframing menstruation and reframing just the female body, my own body, and recognizing how much internalized misogyny I have accumulated throughout my lifetime and doing some different self-talk for myself. When I know, like I do, I notice when I get my period that I'm like, completely disgusted and like grossed out and like, oh, and I just, I mean, maybe a couple years ago, I noticed that that's what my brain did. And then I stopped myself and I said, thank you to my body mm. instead. And I just, I like, I actually cried a lot when I realized that every month for the past, however many decades that I've been going through this, I didn't even notice that I have this such negative self-talk. And I just thanked my womb for giving me my four children and just acknowledged that it was doing what it was supposed to do and mm -hmm. that that whole process was necessary for me to be able to have children. And that even for women who don't have children, that this is not a gross thing. It's just a natural part of being human and being female. And I just am considering what that would have been like to have been raised in a culture where that was just native to me, that that was just the default way of looking at a girl and a woman instead of this like, oh, and don't talk about it and seeing ourselves so negatively it makes me really sad and really happy that it does exist in a better way. Yeah. In other places. It's, it's infinitely healthier. <laughs> yep. 
I mean, yep. how can you hate something that's supposed to happen, right? Right, right. <laughs> and it's a disgusted. part of you. Yeah. yeah, it's so sad. Yeah, and it's always a beautiful indication of your the activity of your whare tangata, your uterus, right? Mm-hmm. And so your mate or your period, your ikora, is an indication of activity in the whare tangata, which is beautiful. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not to say that your job is just to have babies. But yeah, right, something right, right. creative is happening and you are like Papa Tuanuku. Mm-hmm. In the womb of Papa Tuanuku, you know, we say that when there's an earthquake, um, Papa Tuanuku still has this baby in her womb called Ruomoko, who kind of is getting agitated and moving around. But Papa Tuanuku, the land, is always producing. The land is the ultimate kōpū. It's the ultimate whāritangata, the ultimate womb. Right? And so in that stage, and that's why we take our ikura, our, um, our toto, our blood, and we take it back to Papa Tuanuku because that's our connection. Mm-hmm. Because that's that feminine activity mm-hmm. that affirms our divinity. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I love too, not just for people who begin menstruating, but for boys, I mean, if you have those words that, like you said, the land is also, it's the same word as placenta. And to just acknowledge, yeah, the land feeds us and the placenta fed you when you were in your mom's belly. And just to normalize all of that, it's just natural that like that's the way humans come into the world. And so to have it represented in the language is really, it would be really powerful for all people, regardless of gender, to just not hide it and stigmatize it. Yeah. And Maori men who are very secure in their cultural identity don't need that explained. Hmm. They just exude respect for the feminine. Hmm. So, yeah. And you said you have six sons, right? You live in a house of men. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you, did you talk to your boys about like, this is what menstruation is? And like, was that? Yeah, okay. That's so great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So their kind of sexuality education also involved watching birth on YouTube. Lots of births. <laughs> Fabulous! That you just showed to them, just I'm so like, they, on, they would get be around, boys. Time to watch it at the, a baby being kofano mai, you know. <laughs> yeah, wow. just so they understand the whole process. Yeah, good for you. That's so awesome. Okay, I know we talked about this just a little bit before, but I'd love to dig into it a little bit more. I'm curious how Maori traditions and ceremonies survived colonization and specifically what were the receptacles that kept them safe so that you have the traditional stories survived and the language survived and didn't go extinct. So if you can talk about those, again, those receptacles that kept them safe during colonization and then talk about the Renaissance that you referred to earlier, that's... I guess, started during your lifetime, right? Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. You know, Māori are very gritty, very hearty. Language is the most important thing because they're the receptacles. And I explain to people if I'm teaching the language, it's not just a word-for-word transfer. It's not just knowing a vocabulary. It's operating within a realm that is offered by Māori thinking. Your thinking is structured in a Māori way. Very, very difficult. If I've been in a context in which we're only speaking Māori, I don't want to speak English. Honestly, I don't really want to speak English. I wished I lived in a world in which I only ever spoke Māori because that's much more intuitive. To me, it's beautiful. It's constantly compelling. And it's who I am, you know, at my very core. And so the language holds everything. And my husband and I were coming back from Southland where my oldest sister, my tōkana, and that's the oldest sister in Māori, was receiving a moko kauai. This is just last weekend. A moko kauai is a tattooing of the chin area. It's a Māori aesthetic, and it's an interesting conversation that we have. You know, all of our sisters, we're Rufus, that's our family name, Rufu. The Rufu sisters have married Pākehā men. Hmm. And so my older sister and I have raised with our Pākehā husbands, we would like to get our mokokauai at some stage because that's just a marking that's part of our, our life transition. And that's been a really interesting conversation about aesthetics because the Māori men in my life are like, when you're getting your mokokauai, and I'm like, oh, you know, Nathan is, isn't that keen. And they're like, oh, God, don't worry about that Pākehā man, you know, it'll make you beautiful. 
Mm. But where Nathan's concerned, it doesn't make you beautiful. So we're mm. kind of talking about different aesthetics. For a Maori woman to have a mokokauai, that's an adornment. It's a cosmetic as well as an assertion of her mana wahine. And to have a bigger body is also valuable because they're sturdy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they won't get cold <laughs> quite as quickly. So there's all of these aesthetic things that we kind of wrangle with in our family. But back to your question. Oh, no, I was thinking about the language. And I was thinking after, as we were driving north back to Christchurch, where we live, I was thinking of Māori. And I turned to Nathan, because he speaks a little Māori, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And what I was thinking in Māori was, roa, which is, you know, how long is this going to take? Or how much longer have we got to go? And I, I turned to him and I said, what's the long? What's the long? Oh. <laughs> That's funny. You're translating back back to English. I love it. Anyways. Can I ask just really quick, at what stage of life do you get the chin tattoo? Any stage. Oh, any stage. Oh, just when you feel like you want to. There's a lot of debate about that that's happening in our community, in the Māori community. It used to be that young girls would get it. This would be kind of a pubescent thing because it would enhance her looks so that she would be more attractive to possible suitors. The last person in our family to have it was my great-great-grandmother, she was the last one to be marked on the chin. So it's a while. So, you know, my sister bringing that back to our family has been lovely. Mm. And a lot of women are. Like, it would be unusual for you to come to this country and not see women marked. It's taken a break since your great-great-grandmother had it. And so is the fact that more women are doing it now, does that indicate a resurgence of traditions like that? Yeah, I think it has to do because there was a lot of racism about Mm -hmm. facial markings. And so kind of New Zealand as a bicultural nation has kind of gone through its own journey. And we're kind of at a stage where we have a whole education system in Māori language. We have television stations, radio stations. Anybody who's anybody needs to be bicultural and bilingual. It's just kind of a, a nationwide thing. And so that's offered space for Māori women to reassert themselves, that identity. But your question was about when, so that was usually a pubescent thing. And it's really up to women to decide when it's the right time. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we talked about the, you said the receptacle that like kept Māori traditions safe and alive, even though there was cultural oppression. And you said even your dad was told he couldn't speak the language, but it was kept alive, I'm sure, in certain families. So I guess my remaining question was, who was it that started this renaissance of culture and fighting back against those oppressive rules? There's always been a fight. Hmm. Always. So Maori resistance has never not been a thing. It's gone through different phases. So there was a lot of land confiscations in the 19th century. There was resistance there. There was resistance to an ongoing court system that alienated Māori from their culture and their language. So, look, that the story of Māori in a colonised territory is a story of resistance and resilience. And I go back to what I said before, when it looked like in the 1970s that the language is on the way out, that something needed to be done. Many people recognize this. You know, we're a collective people. So we go from tribe to tribe as groups and we have that conversation. There's no one savior person. That's a very much a different outlook. You know, we don't have a president of all the Maoris, you know. Oh, we've got a king and we pay respect to him. But he's not over all the Maori because you couldn't do that because there is no one group of Maori. There are a number of different tribes of Maori who share collective concerns, but sit in their own identity of their own tribe and their own character of their tribe, their own law, and even to a certain degree, their own language. Dialectically, we can be quite different, but have the same base language. And I would say that it was really women who got together and said, if we don't do something about this, we're going to lose this language. And so in the early 1980s, they put together what they call kohanga reo, which are language nests. And these are early childhood centres. They did that voluntarily. The government didn't pay them. But they would go around in their communities and they would knock on doors and say, well, we can see that you're hapu, you're pregnant, so you need to bring your baby to us. So there was a real sense of, oh, okay. 
you know, you have to deal with some of the resistance, the colonial thinking of a lot of our people at that time. And so a group of children grew up immersed in the Māori language, supported by the grandmothers and the aunties. And then there was a question, well, what do we do now? So they've got an early childhood education. So now we need to have schools. And so they started schools. They're called kurakaupapa. And then from the schools, they were like, oh, okay, so what do we do with our kids? You know, once they reach 12, let's make high schools for them. And by this stage, the government was getting on board. There had been petitions to the government to formalise Māori and to make it an official language of New Zealand. That was passed in 92, I believe. And then schools became kind of entrenched. And then the success of those Māori schools was phenomenal. So if you secure cultural identity with people, then they can fly. And that's what the research has discovered, that these schools for our young, where they're immersed in the culture and the language, they're coming out very, very secure with fewer of those deleterious antisocial kind of activity going on in their life. They go on to university, they get PhDs, they become doctors and, you know, they perform at a level that's equivalent to our independent schools. So there's that. And so that language holds a lot of that wisdom. And that was a really transmission of grandparent to child because there was a whole generation that was lost in there who were the first urbanised ones who were told you don't speak the language and to made to feel embarrassed about being Māori. Yeah. Wow. What we say is tikanga, which is culture, is always in motion. But the principles that hold it there are firm. Hmm. The principles of hospitality, of ancestry. Ancestry is really important to us. And where you come from, whakapapa. The principle of the tile, the environment. What's our relationship with the environment? Because there's this beautiful saying which says, it comes from a certain tribal district, but it's saying, I am the river and the river is me. And that goes through all of our thinking. I am the land, the land is me. And if you understand that you are the land, the land is you, you're not some corporeal object that's eventually going to go off to heaven and be celestialized and live in another kingdom so you can just dirty up the earth as much as you like, which is really, really terrible one of the terrible aspects of Christianity is to kind of displace responsibility for the earth to mm-hmm. something else, you know, mm-hmm. to, to kind of another realm. But Māori are very, very grounded in that we're here, we're with the earth now, we need the earth, so let's take care of her, let's take care of the sky because there's no distinction between what we are and what that is. Mm. Beautiful. Okay, I have two more questions for you. The first one is that New Zealand was famously the first country in the world to grant women the right to vote in 1893. Is that something you grew up knowing and were proud of? And then my second question about that was whether Maori and women of European descent, white women, did they work together for the right to vote? Or I know that in America and in Europe, actually, it was a very fraught process of white women kind of throwing women of color under the bus and not including them in the process of suffrage. And I wondered if it went differently in New Zealand. Uh, we had a suffrage movement, for sure. And our country's most famous suffragist was a woman called Kate Shepard. She appears on one of our notes, I think. You hmm. know. And she was English and she came to New Zealand in about 1868. Yeah, so she organised women's suffrage. So she was really working really hard in the urban areas. Now, Māori women got the vote as well. So you have this suffragist movement being a really important part of our history. But I don't know. I mean, I've always known it. I grew up in the 1970s, 80s, and my mother was counted herself as a feminist. Mm-hmm. And the big question was about women's liberation. And... New Zealand's very progressive, and I think mm-hmm. it comes back to the fact that there was not very many white women here. And so when they did arrive, it was like, oh, we're so grateful that you're here. We'll just give you your rights. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's funny. Oh, that's interesting. So it's largely men for a long time. The European colonizers came to the island, didn't bring wives with them for a while. Yeah. yeah. And Is then you've got to think about New Zealand in terms of being I mean, it looks like a small place, but we've always had a smallish population. 
And here's the issue with living in rural areas where both the masculine and the feminine are really important, mm-hmm. even in Pākehā context. So you have men often that came out first to kind of cut down forests and ruin our landscapes, but, you know, there's another story. You know, to begin the process of farming and then bringing their wives over and they played a balanced role. So I think males and females in New Zealand by nature of the landscape, were forced into cooperation with each other. But also, I think the pull of Christianity hasn't been quite as much. Like, right from the outset, you know, obviously, if we had a state religion, it would be the Church of England, because we're still a constitutional monarchy, and currently we have a king. But it's been quite secular. Okay. So, yeah, Christianity's been important, but, yeah, quite secular. Okay. And so that has kind of greased the wheels of LGBT rights, also the wheels of women rights. If you look at our current parliament, we're at a 50-50 in terms of females and males. I think maybe for the Labour Party, the, the current government, we've got like this kind of outsized proportion of LGBT members of parliament representing us. And I'm not saying that it's all idyllic because mm-hmm. we do have that whole sector of kind of pale male and stale and Christian who get mouthy about things but but generally it would be very difficult to last here if you weren't progressive in your politics. Yeah well that leads to the last question which was about Jacinda Ardern. You know this I'm sure but I feel like the whole world at least the people I know in my world just look at New Zealand as just this beacon of hope and and we look at Jacinda Ardern as just this incredibly inspiring figure. Yeah. Can you talk about her a bit? Yes. Phenomenal woman. I have such huge admiration for her. As you know, she grew up LDS in a very strong mm-hmm. LDS family. Her uncle was the principal of Church College, which is the school's college. She grew up in a place called Morinsville. She participated in the church right up until she was a young woman. She went to Wellington to do her degree in politics and there was kind of exposed to progressive politics that had really had her heart. So she was very much a democratic socialist, very much left-leaning in her formative years, and she was in a house living with LGBT people. And when she realised the reality of that, knew at that point that she couldn't reconcile the LGBT issue with her own growing self, her own sort of spiritual and personal development. She also says that tithing was a problem because she's got a heart for the poor when she realized what a burden tithing is on those who are poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should just say here that the LDS church requires you to pay 10% of your income to the yeah. church for those listeners who don't know that. It, it is a tremendous thing to ask of people who are. Uh, it's huge. It's huge. And, yeah. you know, she, like me, grew up in New Zealand where the church is largely brown and largely Pacifica Māori and so it's poor and for Pacifica people who desperately want to stay you know who desperately want to be part of the community are working a couple of jobs paying 10% of their income and that just doesn't make sense in terms of social justice so for Jacinda Ardern her she's a she's a social justice warrior and so growing up in the church I think has made her reasonably competent in the Māori world and in the Pacifica world as well I think her growing up LDS in New Zealand in particular meant that she was exposed to a lot of cultural trajectories that normal people wouldn't be exposed to. That's why she's so competent with diversity. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, also the way she handled the shooting that you had a few years ago and just with so much compassion and grace and empathy, I just was so moved by that. One last question about her. When she resigned recently, she talked about, you know, her mental health and her personal life and bringing that into play and not just being in politics for ambitious reasons. I thought she was being a tremendous role model there too. Is that the feeling in New Zealand as well? Yeah, look, and I will say she really came under the pump over COVID. So you would know that she'd had a series of things. I don't know of a more tragic kind of period in New Zealand's history where one prime minister had to deal with it. So there we had the volcanic explosion on White Island. I think 19 people were killed and they were mostly our tourists. 
so she had to deal with that and she had to deal with the shooting in which 51 people died just around the corner from where I am now mm. or just down the road and then she had COVID and I think that there is a very noisy and horrid sector of our community which is very patriarchal very white very fascist and wholly uninformed and has not a social justice bone in their body and they sent her death threats and I mean they really made her life hell she was very very resilient about that but I think she was tired I could tell it like before Christmas I'd said to Nathan I heard her in a press conference and I thought well she's tired she's sick of this (laughs) and then she came back after after Christmas and said I'm done yeah (laughs) (laughs) wow well, yeah, she'll go down in history as a real, uh, again, just such a role model for people. And it was wonderful to watch even from afar and feel it's just one more reason to be jealous of people who live in New Zealand, especially in the last little while living in America. Mm-hmm. But anyway, well, is there any uh, final thoughts that you'd like to share, Gina? I would just like to say, and I know kind of the struggles of the feminine and I've been involved in coming backwards and forwards to America. So I'm somewhat familiar with the discourse. I'm not a native. But I just, you know, from a Māori woman to American woman, just to say to never undermine or degrade the feminine in you. That is a gift from the gods and the goddesses. And to be mindful of that, that patriarchy is a sin for any cultural system. And not to be apprehended by that, but to assert, be like the aunties, like, What's at risk here? Organise collectively and assert your right to be a woman. Assert your right to your particular relationship with the whenua, with the land, and papatua nuku. You know, this world has gone very topsy-turvy when that balance is out. So we need some strong women to reassert that balance. Thank you so much, Gina Colvin. I so appreciate all of your wisdom and so appreciate you talking with me today. Thanks so much. Kia ora. He mihi mahana ki ako e me te hunga e whakarongoana. Kia ora, um, Amy. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on breaking down patriarchy.